turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem Media. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Well, Daniel, you know he wasn't a compromiser. Daniel had no problem in doing that. Not only that, but we read basically the same thing in Nehemiah 2-3. No, it, there was no problem in bowing down. It was not idolatry. And in addition to that, all of our records, historical records indicate that Persian kings didn't claim to be divine. They never claimed to be deity, so to bow down to them was not in essence saying that I'm worshiping you as, as deity, as a god. No idolatry involved in it. So what has all of this got to do with the story of Esther? Well, it seems that Esther's cousin Mordecai may frequently be given a lot more credit than he truly deserves. If bowing to the king or giving reverence to high-ranking officials was not considered wrong for someone like Daniel, then how could Mordecai make such an issue of bowing to Haman? What were his motives? Welcome back to our study of the book of Esther here on Verse by Verse. Last time, Pastor Steve began to explain that the lofty view we often have of Esther and Mordecai simply does not fit with what the Bible teaches concerning the Jews of that day. There are numerous evidences that they were not good Jews who faithfully reverenced God and desired to do His will. In fact, if we could have met them and observed them, we would probably have considered them to be some of the most unlikely Jews that God would use to save the nation of Israel. Pastor Steve has a lot more to say on this matter. May I suggest to you tonight that while they were courageous, and there's no question about it, they were courageous, they were not godly, and they were not spiritual, and they are certainly, at least in my mind, without any question, they were not righteous examples for us to follow. Now, having said that, let me try to defend that, because I think the evidence demands this conclusion. And you need to turn to Esther so we can look at a few things. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that with haste. I have thought long about this and have been in prayer about this. And it is my not only conclusion, but conviction that these things are true. Let me back it up. First of all, let's look at Esther. Esther married a pagan king. Uh, She became the wife of a man by the name of Xerxes, pagan king, a zealous pagan man, one who was in false religion. Now, some say, but she was forced to do this. Some say she was forced against her will to do this. She had no choice in the matter. Well, let's look at Esther chapter 2, verse 8. If she was forced in the matter, it's one thing. But if she was willful in her desire to be the queen of Persia, then it's quite another. And it came about 
when the command and the and decree of the king was heard and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, into the custody of Hege, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hege, who was in charge of the women. Now, the key word there was taken, was taken. Now, some say, you see, that means that she was taken by force. Doesn't mean that at all. The Hebrew word translated taken does not mean forced against her will. If you'll jump down on the page to verse 15, you'll see the same word used to tell us something that she, that she was not forced against her will to do. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, Mordecai took her as his daughter. That's the same word that's used in verse 8. Now, you know the relationship of Esther and Mordecai. She was not forced against her will. She loved this man. She obeyed this man. She was not a rebellious Jewess. She probably deeply respected her parents. And when her parents were, were no longer there, Mordecai took her in and she was not forced against her will. Therefore, verse 8, by the, the very context of the Hebrew word used, is not saying that she was forced against her will to become the queen, or at least taken into custody. She wanted to. So Esther wanted to be queen of Persia, married to a pagan king, ungodly, involved in false religion. In fact, the religion of astrology, cultic and occultic, I should say, not cultic, occultic. You see, the difference between Esther and the Old Testament character Ruth was that Esther was, was a Jew married to a Gentile, while Ruth was a Gentile married to a Jew. Esther was wrong. She should have never married a pagan king. Not only that, but unlike righteous Daniel, which is about this time frame in history, a few years difference, but about this time frame, unlike righteous Daniel, she found no difficulty in eating non-kosher foods. For many months, look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best palace in the harem. Esther had no problem eating non-kosher foods. Now you recall Daniel did. Daniel said there's no way. I'd rather die than disobey the law of God. Daniel is a righteous man. Esther is not a righteous Jew. She is not a righteous woman. She had no problem, no problem whatsoever. Also, she failed to tell anybody that she was Jewish. Mordecai said to her, don't tell anyone, conceal your identity, and she did. This masquerade, I want you to know, did not last a few days or a few weeks or even a few months, it lasted five years. Nobody knew for five years. Maybe the closest people to her knew. Maybe those who waited upon her knew. But basically, no one else knew that she was a Jew. One scholar said this, for the masquerade to last that long, she must have done more than eat, dress, and live like a Persian. She must have worshipped like one. Absolutely. Logic demands that. She lived like a Persian, which meant worshiping the stars and 
doing everything that Daniel said he wouldn't do. The more one discovers of Esther, the more it appears that Jewishness, her Jewishness was more a matter of, of birth than of religious conviction. What about Mordecai, her cousin? Obviously, he was an older cousin, took her in as if he were her father. Well, he's no better. Spiritually, that is. He's no better. Courageous? Yes. Spiritual? No. He's the one who orders, absolutely orders Esther to conceal her identity. And you say, well, what was wrong with that? Listen, no godly Jew would have done that. God called Israel to be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles, not to hide their identity. They were, they were his unique people, his holy people, not to be violating the law of Moses, not to be worshiping stars, not to be doing things in, in contrary to the law of God. No, and, and he ordered her to do this. No godly Jew would have done that. Well, some say that Mordecai's godliness is evidenced by his refusal to bow down to Haman. We read that he would not bow down to Haman, and, and they say, well, look, that's proof that he was a godly Jew, and he would not worship a man. He would not get into idolatry. So doesn't that prove that he was spiritual? No. I don't think that's the reason that Mordecai refused to bow down. Let me explain why. First of all, it was the accepted custom for Israelites to fall down upon the earth before a king in an exalted position. That wasn't idolatry. You read this and you can just write this down in 2 Samuel 14.4 and 2 Samuel 18.28 and 1 Kings 1.16. In fact, let me show you that in Daniel, godly man that he was, you know what he said in chapter 6, verse 21? Then Daniel spoke to the king, ungodly, pagan king. Oh, king, live forever. Now, Daniel, you know he wasn't a compromiser. Daniel had no problem in doing that. Not only that, but we read basically the same thing in Nehemiah 2.3. No, it, there was no problem in bowing down. It was not idolatry. And in addition to that, all of our records, historical records, indicate that Persian kings didn't claim to be divine. They never claimed to be deity, so to bow down to them was not, in essence, saying that I'm worshiping you as, as deity, as a god. No idolatry involved in it. And not only that, but later, when Mordecai replaced Haman in the exalted position in the Persian Empire, he would be expected to bow down to the king. He would know that. He, I'm sure he didn't have a problem doing that. Doing that. It would be understood this position calls for some bowing down. You know why I think Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman? It's called stubborn pride. He hated Haman and Haman hated him. It's called stubborn, rebellious pride. I believe that Esther and Mordecai were disobedient Jews, probably unregenerate, unsaved Jews. In addition to all we've said, they never once speak of God. They never speak of him. They never speak of Jerusalem, the city of, of David, the city of God. They never speak of the temple, the place where God is worshipped. They never speak of the law, the reflection of, of God's nature. They never speak of the covenants that God has made with his people. They never speak of sacrifices, which was the only way to approach God. They never speak of prayer. They mention fasting, but never prayer. 
which is communion with God, or any other things that were so dear and precious to the Jewish people of that time. In fact, let me burst another bubble. Mordecai and Esther and the majority of the Jewish people living in Persia at the time should never have been there. They were in the wrong place. They should have been back in Israel. Why do I say that? This is the time period of about Ezra. In fact, I, I believe that, that Esther fits into the time frame of between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. And about the time of, of Nehemiah is when the Jews were in exile, in captivity. They went into captivity uh, when the Babylonians stormed Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, and just blasted Jerusalem. And they took back with them captivity, uh, the captives. And they did this at three different intervals. Daniel was one of the first to go. But this is the time frame. The Jewish people had been in exile during the Babylonian uh, captivity. And when the Babylonian Empire lost its power, it was taken over by another group called the Medes and the, and the Persians or the Persian Empire. And that's where, where Esther and Mordecai are in, in the time of history. But you know what? They were allowed to return. They were allowed to go back. In fact, Isaiah and Jeremiah said that they were commanded to return. After 70 years, they were told to get back. It was just a captivity on a temporary basis. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14 says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon... I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. It was never God's intention that they stay away. Not after 70 years. Get back. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then, meaning when you're back in the land, you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore you. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Isaiah 48, 20 says the same thing. Jeremiah 50, verse 8 and 51, verse 6, all says the same thing. You are to go back to the land. You are not to stay in Persia. You are not to stay in Babylon. You are not to stay in captivity and in exile. Go back to the land. Why? Because God's program for the nation was centered in that land with its sacrificial system, with its temple. When the Jewish people were out of the land, they were not blessed. When the Jewish people were in the land, they were blessed. And they were in the unique, special privilege when they were in the land. But people like Esther and like Mordecai, and we're not just isolating them. The majority of Jewish people who stayed should not have stayed. Many had gone back. Not most, though. Most stayed. And those who stayed applauded those who returned. And they said, isn't it wonderful that they've gone back to, to Jerusalem to rebuild the cities of Judah and the temple at Jerusalem? But we're not going to go. Why wouldn't they go? Well, we love it here. It's convenient here. We're treated well here. We've got plenty in Persia. Why would we want to go back in a pioneering ministry? 
Why should we return to the, for the, to the leanness of Judea? Judah and Jerusalem, and we've got the plenty out here in, in Persia. We're taken care of. And they stayed away from Jerusalem, Israel, Judea, and yet that was the place of unique blessing and privilege. Do you want to know how the Jewish people who were believing, obedient people felt about it? Psalm 137, you need to turn there. It's one of my favorite psalms. I, I never read it, but that I can sense the anguish of the people of, of Israel. The absolute anguish with being in captivity. Now, this should have been the attitude of Esther and Mordecai and the other Jews, but after a period of time, they just got so satisfied and so fat in the land, spiritually speaking, and they just loved it there. But here's how they should have felt. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. When we remembered Zion, we wept. We sat down, we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, when we remembered the temple and and prayer and sacrament. We just wept. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They said, sing. We've heard about you Jews and you sing. Sing us songs about Zion. How can we sing? How can we sing? Music and song is the expression of a spirit-filled heart, a heart that's rejoicing. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now watch this. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Well, according to this, Esther and Mordecai should have had their right hands forget their skills and their tongues should have stuck to the roof of their mouths. That's how they should have felt. That should have been their attitude. Anything to go back to Israel, but they didn't go back. They stayed. They were very content to stay in Persia. Even though God said, get up and get out, they had grown comfortable. And their burden wasn't for God's program to continue in the land of Israel. And you must understand that. It's not just that they had no concern to get back in a pioneering work. They weren't concerned for the program of God. To reject Jerusalem with its temple and its sacrificial system and the law being in effect was in essence to to turn their backs on God. It was to say we're not interested in the divine program continuing. We thank it. We like it this way. Thank you, Lord, but no thanks. We're very content. Now watch this. What we're saying is that Esther and Mordecai and the other Jews in Persia no longer identified themselves, and that's the key word, identify themselves with God's program for Israel. They refused to identify themselves with God's program for Israel. And folks, that's the reason that God's name isn't mentioned once in this book. Because God would not identify his name and attach it with those Jews who refused to identify themselves with his revealed program for Israel. Let me say that again. God's name is not mentioned at all because God refuses to identify himself and attach his name 
with those Jews who refuse to identify themselves with his revealed program. But in his providence, he will watch over them. And in keeping with his faithfulness and his promises to Israel, he will not abandon them. He will protect them, even if he won't identify with them. Even if he won't attach his name to them, he will preserve them, even if his name will not be bound up with theirs. We need to see this in Scripture, that God promises never to abandon Israel, but always to preserve her. If you turn to Jeremiah 31, please, and you will see in just a few moments how it all applies to the Christian today. This is not ancient history, and we leave it at that. This is truth for us today, but we have to show you the ancient history. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that it, its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs, From before me, declares the Lord, that is the sun, the moon, the stars. If it departs from me, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease. If the sun doesn't shine somewhere, if it never shines again, then Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. If you could ever measure the heavens, then you can say that God will cast away Israel. If the stars cease to exist and the moon ceases to exist and the sun ceases to exist, then God will cast off Israel. Obviously, what God is saying is he will never abandon his people. Never. God's promises to Israel are very clear. He has chosen them to be a special group through whom he will demonstrate his greatness to the whole world. And even though there has been a long period of time in which it might seem that God has forgotten the people of Israel, he has plainly stated that he will never forget them and he will never go back on his purpose for them. No matter what happens in the course of human history, God will fulfill his promises to Israel to make them a great nation through which all the world will be blessed. Now, Steve, many of our listeners may not know that when you speak about God's preservation of Israel, you're speaking about something very near to your heart. In fact, you wrote a book about this topic. I did. It is dear to my heart for one thing because uh, I am a Jewish believer in Christ. And uh, so the things about Israel and the Jewish people are very special to me. Several years ago, I I wrote a book addressing the issue of Israel. It's called God's Plan for Israel. It's a study of Romans 9 through 11. And basically, the, uh, the premise is that God is not finished with the Jewish people. He has a glorious plan for them, even though he has temporarily set them aside as he focuses on building his church. And in that book, you examine the biblical reasons why God cannot ever turn his back on Israel, even though the large majority of Israelites may be people very similar to Mordecai and Esther, people who have nominal belief in God, but who do not have a relationship with him. So it's a really good companion book for this study in Esther, since it helps to explain the underlying dynamics that we see throughout the story of Esther. Thank you, Steve. 
The title of the book, once again, is God's Plan for Israel. There are chapters that deal with Israel's responsibility before God and the reasons why God has allowed such a long period in which they have seemed to be outside of his blessings. You'll also find an explanation of how God's righteousness is demonstrated in all of his dealings with Israel. You can order a copy by calling us here at Verse by Verse. The phone number is 727-239-0306. No matter who we are or where we live, we all have various things in our lives that tend to make us worry. For some, it is the health and safety of loved ones. For others, it may be debts that are piling up and the fear that we will not be able to make ends meet. There may even be some listeners right now who are faced with a situation in which their lives have been greatly affected by the sinful choices of others, and they are wondering how they can cope with the consequences. Well, no matter what our situation, the book of Esther offers us some hope, because it reminds us that God really is in control of every little detail of our lives. Even when people are making decisions that are in disobedience to God, those decisions still fit into his overall purpose, and he uses them to accomplish his plans. In other words, the story of Esther teaches us that we can trust God at all times and in every situation. We don't need to worry. We hope that you'll continue to follow along with us as we journey through this remarkable story and see God's providence at every turn. You might even want to contact a friend or loved one who is facing some worrisome times and invite them to listen too. And please remember to keep this radio ministry in your prayers as we seek to fill the airwaves with sound biblical instruction.